it wasn't so specific when you actually needed to do it, right? The one guy did it a year ago, then the other guy with his big Ram truck did it six months ago. I thought, well, I can do it maybe next year. Mm. And then the market basically fell out pretty quickly for anybody who was around at that time or remembers or read about it. It only took, I think, like a month to lose amazing amounts of value in the stock market. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive the risk reduction checklist I've created from the lessons I've learned from all of my guests and get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Also, in the community, you will receive a super special podcast listener discount on my six-week Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp. This bootcamp is for those who want to learn exactly how to value companies like a pro and advance their career in finance. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com to join our community for free fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Axel Meyerhofer. Axel, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Axel Meyerhofer was born in Germany, served 22 years as an Air Force aviator and instructor. In 2005, he started his consulting company and then discovered real estate investing during the recession. Now, experiencing financial freedom, he wants to share his secrets and his life lessons with all of us. You can find him at his Ideal Wealth Grower YouTube channel. Axel, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Well, you pretty much summarized it very well. The only other thing I would say is when I retired from the military, I tried being a regular employee for a company. And then, like you said, in 2005, started my own business and that's pretty much the only thing, and I'm still doing the same thing these mm. days. So, and it, yep. what when you started the consulting? What area of consulting is your you know area of specialty? Well, this is a, a little bit of a maybe a tangent to what mm. we we're actually going to yep. talk about. It's a little bit of a funny tangent, maybe. So, I was absolutely convinced, like you mentioned, I'm an instructor in the in the military. I had a pretty good standing, saw a lot of things. So, I thought that would be interesting to companies. And when I started consulting, I thought I would just stay in this, you know, like mm -hmm. military defense, defense contract area, lots of money there, training people in cool stuff and so forth. And I got asked by another consulting company owner if I could help on something completely off the cuff mm. where Sharing Plow and Merck, two pretty big pharmaceutical yeah. companies had merged. That's what they called it in yeah. reality. One Crashed. bought the other. No, one bought the other, right? Okay. It was really an acquisition. But one thing I thought that they did was actually quite smart is to say, okay, on the Merck side, let's look at all the processes and things that we're doing really well. Mm. Let's look at the sharing side and look at what they do particularly well and then identify the delta. And mm. instead of us trying to pretend as if we suddenly knew just because we came together how to do it better, let's bring in some people from the outside and let them take a look and make some suggestions. And without going into too much detail, they had like a horrendous and unbelievably expensive process. 
of basically telling the regulators, meaning the FDA, that they made a change in their marketing. Mm. And that, to keep this kind of like a, a little bit lighter, I always said, when I first asked, can you tell me the most egregious, which lines up well with our yep. discussion, right? but in a different area. So the most egregious example of how this works. And the guy that I talked to said, well, think about this. This happened last year. We have nine people on this committee from like really highly paid six-figure lawyers to other people, experts, scientists, and so forth and so forth. And the company leadership decided to retain the same design Christmas card, but change the year naturally. <laughs> and nine people had to come together in a room and each and every one signed a form that was submitted to the FDA for this particular product that the Christmas card was for going out to all the, to all the vendors and uh. clients and stuff like that. And the only change was... I think it was from like uh, 2003 to 2004. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> like, God. Like, so, That's hilarious. And so they said, well, you know, this is kind of what we're facing and, and we're looking for people who can change this. And so I, I tapped into this. I, and you mentioned this earlier, pre, mm. pre show, right? Like German structure thinking yep. and efficiencies and stuff and came up with an approach. And I briefed them on what I think they should do to avoid mm. a lot of time, a lot of pain, a lot of cost and so forth. Did that, everybody was seemingly happy. I thought, okay, that was cool. And now I go back to my military defense training kind of stuff. And a few weeks later, I get a call and they said, you know, we really like what you came up with. This would be a significant change to the procedure that we have been doing before. Could you train our people since you developed it? You probably, and you are an instructor, you should be probably the best person to train everybody. And I'm like, sure. I mean, you know, training is training in a way. I do that. Well, little did I know that that meant 500 U.S. marketing people and 250 global marketing people. So for two years, I trained people in the Merck Training Center in Pennsylvania on wow. how this process worked. And I still claim, I said this, this has a little bit of a funny twist, that somebody in that Homewood Suites Hotel right next to the training center one night came along and tattooed an invisible ink pharmaceutical industry on my forehead. And ever since, I've only gotten you know, pretty much 90 whatever percent working in the life science and pharmaceutical industry. So, you mm. know, the short answer to your question would be, how does a military aviator and staff officer end up being a consultant in the life science industry? There That's you go. That's how it went for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I always have thought all my life is, you know, that's the value of competition, too, because big companies that are really big, maybe that are highly regulated, you know, the truth is there's so much opportunity. And that's where I love, yeah, it's one thing. I worked in Pepsi in Los Angeles and, you know, I saw a lot of the same type of thing. And even though, you know, it's competitive and all that, the reality is, is that without small competitors coming along, trying to eat your lunch, you know, sometimes you can really get off track. And so I always appreciate in America we had when I was going through university we had something called students for students in free enterprise or something that was trying to teach young people that you know the the value of small businesses and you know small businesses can either take over big businesses over time or they can make big businesses better and so the waste is huge <laughs> yeah absolutely
Yeah. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So the story basically starts and the setting of the story starts in a way with me transitioning from having come to the United States in as part of an exchange program to fly F-111 fighter jets for the US Air Force. And when that finished, I thought and my family, my wife, and we thought we would go back to Germany, but we were told, and not in those words, but that's my interpretation, peace had broken out, unification in Germany and blah, 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 and training should no longer be done in aviation in these densely populated areas in Europe, but should be transferred to less densely populated areas like, for example, New Mexico. And since I was already stationed in New Mexico as part of this exchange program, they said, well, you know the language, you just finished your term at a U.S. Air Force base. We have signed a contract at another U.S. Air Force base about 300 miles further south towards the Mexican border in El Paso area, where we want to develop a German flight training center together with the U.S. flight training center for what at the time was called the stealth fighter and then train together. Mm. And to get this out of the ground, we need to have somebody with experience dealing with both sides, speaking the language and all that stuff and manage the project. And so you have been chosen by some of our leaders here in Germany to be the program manager for this new flight training center. And so I moved there and you have to keep in mind, this was happening around the year 2000, right? Like late nineties, early 2000. And with this transition came the need for a lot of people being put about, initially we were about a hundred and then it grew to 800 people from Germany, all kinds of different ranks in a desert town in, in New Mexico, basically. So there was a lot of need to really do relationships building and engagement and stuff like that. And the media, I mean, not like social media, what we have right now, but the, the amount and the type of media that was common at the time was constantly drumming how necessary it was for everybody to be in the stock market. And this amazing future coming our way, this amazing technology, the dot-coms, everything will be automated, the robots will rule the world, everything will be on internet and websites and stuff like that. And in a nutshell, basically, you would be an idiot if you wouldn't try to participate. And at the time, and I have to admit at the time, neither myself nor most other people I was with had any idea what was like a blue chip stock or a penny stock or anything like that. They didn't teach you that but in the military. They didn't teach that. No. <laughs> they taught us how to train other people to fly a fighter jet and drop bombs and shoot yeah. missiles and all that kind of stuff. But one thing that was the real fascination initially for me and, and for like a core group that became almost like a tiny little investor club was that it didn't really take a rich person to start participating because these penny stocks were relatively cheap, like well below a dollar a piece. Mm. So you could buy like several hundred or several thousand because as good Germans, <laughs> we always thought, well, if it's not a substantial number, it wouldn't make a difference. And for anybody who can remember that time, there were all these stories where people, it sounded almost like overnight, but in reality, we were realistic and typically German skeptical enough to say it was probably not overnight, but within 
a year or a few years to really reach amazing levels of growth in the companies. They collected VC money left and right. Stock prices exploded from a few pennies to a few dollars and stuff. And one thing I always have to say, a little side hit at my American friends. One thing we learned in Germany, regardless military or not, is like the basics of math. Uh, we can add, subtract, divide, percent, that kind of stuff, it basically without having to take out a calculator. Mm -hmm. And so you just looked at these stories and these numbers and it became very obvious, there is money to be made. And so initially, several of us started doing this on our own. I actually felt, hey, you know, this is also kind of like an opportunity to build community by doing it together, talk about it. And we started this little club-like thing that initially met once a month and then more or less every other week. And in a sense, it was cool because we got to know each other in a, on a different level. We got to feel into who is really kind of out there and, and adventurous and who was more holding back and who was, I was kind of more in the middle. But we all made money and we started having these kind of amazing dreams. Like one of my friends had started handing around pictures of the BMW that he would buy himself from the... <laughs> and one thing that the audience needs to keep in mind is these military assignments typically have a pretty fixed, determined end time when you get moved to the next place. It was a little different for me because I was basically allocated to get this thing to the finish line. Almost everybody sooner or later came and went. And so we literally not only saw the news about the gains, but we also had cases where the one guy actually did get his BMW. He sold everything and bought the BMW. And there was a crazy a, a deal where you could claim at the time diplomatic status as a military member in the United States. So you got the car without taxes. Mm. The BMW literally shipped it from Munich to New Mexico, no taxes. And when you took it back, it was part of your moving inventory. Right? And, so. and for, for, for young people out there, in those days, if you could buy a BMW, you were rich. Yeah, you were totally rich. <laughs> and the other friend that I still vividly remember, he was a staff sergeant and his family had a farm. And he had seen how many of the people in the rural areas there in New Mexico had these massive ram trucks with double wheels in the back. And they were not cheap by any mm. means. So mm. He had to not just use some of the gains he had made with the stocks, but he basically saved. He had all along been saying, when I go home, I get one of those. But the stock gains actually helped. So he's the other vivid example. Yep. I had made all kinds of interesting ideas and goals and stuff of what I wanted to do. And had basically believed that it wasn't so specific when you actually needed to do it, right? The one guy did it a year ago, then the other guy with his big Ram truck did it six months ago. I thought, well, I can do it maybe next year. Mm. And then the market basically fell out pretty quickly for anybody who was around at that time or remembers or read about it. It only took, I think, like a month to lose amazing amounts of value in the stock market. And so I actually didn't get to do any of those things that some of my friends did. And it was very devastating because the amount of money, right? I mean, in my case, it was literally $75,000 of, I still to this day, right? I mean, <laughs> if you start asking me questions about it, Andrew, I would probably still argue in that way. It was in the sense, vapor, paper money. 
yeah. that I never really had. But on the other hand, I'm realist enough had I at any point in time when my friends bought their BMW or their Ram truck had sold and I would have had the money and could have done anything like that or other stuff that I had in mind. So it was, you know, gains, yes. And it wasn't really money that I, I ever got my paws on, so to speak. Mm. But it was my money, basically. The value of the investments had accumulated to this point. And so $75,000. Yeah, when was the point that you realized it's all gone or, you know, like it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to ever really come back? Well, it didn't immediately plunge completely down, like from like 100 to 25 in one day. But like I said, we had these biweekly meetings. So we got a, saw a little dip and we said, oh, yeah, there have, has been volatility before. No worries. You know, it's going to go back up. Then two weeks later, and it's not that we never looked in between, but, you know, you kind of the worse it got, the less you wanted to talk about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> so yep. the next meeting after we were already like, I would say, like 40 percent down. And the, I remember that meeting we discussed, should we just sell everything? We were still mm -hmm. all pretty much in the plus. And ultimately, I would have to admit, I probably didn't really literally lose money in the sense of if I compare mm -hmm. how much I put in in those two years and how much after all, when I basically liquidated, I got close to what I put in back in, but it was still 75000 less than what we could have had. Yep. And it took us basically a month. And by that time, it was literally too late. And anybody who lived through that can tell how long it took the NASDAQ to even come close to where it was before. So, yeah. if, so how would you, you summarize the lessons that you learned from it? Several things. One of the really core lessons was, and it took me a long time. It does. It might sound like in our conversation mm. that happened overnight, but it took a long time for me to analyze again, maybe in somewhat typical German fashion. Why did I behave the way that I behaved? And the answer that I'm still claiming giving today is that I was much too willing to buy into the Kool-Aid or drink the Kool-Aid, if you want to call it that, <laughs> rather than really become knowledgeable, right? It was a thing that I really didn't fully understand. I just saw the news. I saw the stories. I got fascinated and I thought, well, I can do 100 bucks or 150 bucks or 300 bucks. Anybody can do that and never really spent the time to understand. We were sounding like we knew something because mm. we were discussing the percentage gain you know two weeks ago versus now but we had no understanding what is a price to cost value or price to cost ratio or why are these companies growing or do they have anything like do they have either any kind of ip or any kind of facilities or any kind of assets or anything other than hype, right? None of that. I mean, right. none of that. So one of the core lessons I would say was, and I, I really live by this now, many years later, 20 mm. years later, that I only get involved in stuff kind of like Warren Buffett, right? Like I don't do anything anymore that I don't understand. And if, if it's initially interesting, then I'm going first into the research until I'm satisfied. I understand. I believe I understand it well enough to commit money to it. Yeah. That is one of the things I didn't do. And the other thing is, it might sound like this would be a generalization to the stock market. And I think that would be unfair, not because I'm a big stock investor at my age right now. But the point is, if you do the research, then there are organizations who have great IP, who have great assets, who have reasonable price to value ratios and stuff like that. And then there are plenty others that is just kind of hype 
right? Yep. Or, or somebody, you know, convincing the lemmings to all jump into the same direction. And yep. that distinction, yep. I wasn't able to make that distinction at the time. And so now I'm basically, and this is why I have Idea Wealth Grower. It started as my retirement plan because I decided I needed to do something that I understand and that retains value. Right. Got it. And uh, maybe I'll add a few things that I take away. You know, for the listeners out there, what Axel's talking about is the, the dot-com boom. And yeah. to put things in perspective, while you were talking, I pulled up some charts and some graphs. And uh, Robert Schiller has great data on this, the, what's called the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio. Basically, what he's doing is just taking the, the earnings of companies over the last 10 years or, yeah, 10 years, averaging them, and then saying, what's the price for those earnings? And just to go back in time, if we look at the peak P.E. ratio going way back in time, the first peak of the data that he has was in 1901. And the peak of the P.E. ratio was 25 times. That was massive. But it wasn't as high as the 1929 boom, which was almost 35, right? About 33 times P.E. And then we had almost a 90% correction and the Great Depression. So let's put the dot-com bubble in perspective. That was about 45 times PE. That was the highest bubble that we've ever had as far as PE is concerned. And it went from basically when you probably started looking at the market, it was trading at around 20 times PE. And then it went up to 45 times PE. And then went back down to 20 times PE within, you know, a couple of years. And as you say, it took years to come back. So the reason why I, I say this is because I think the lesson that, that I take away and I want all the listeners to think about is that when you look back at price charts, you know, you can say, why didn't I, why didn't we sell right then? You know, it's because you get caught up in the emotion, like you said. And so one of the lessons I've learned in my own career as in the stock market is, you really never can know the future, but you can know the present. As someone, I can't remember who said it, it's like, I'm on the cutting edge of present, of the present. <laughs> like, I know where I am. So let's put that in perspective to today. So if the PE during the dot-com bubble was the highest it had ever been at close to 45 times PE, and you as well as many other people got trapped in that, where is the P.E. today? Well, according to this data, the P.E. is now at 37 times. So we're only slightly below the dot-com bubble. Now, you can say what happened in the crash to the dot-com bubble was that so much of the profits were just, there were no profits. So we were all being sold a dream there. Now you can say, okay, there's a lot of profits underlying the companies right now. And the global economic shutdown basically destroyed a lot of competition. So the surviving players actually probably have a lot of profits. So you could argue, well, maybe that's going to go from 37 to 45 or 50. Could. But I just want everybody to know that this is a great lesson from Axel to think about where things are. And the reality is we are closer to the top of a bubble than we are then we've been in a long, long time. Does that mean it can't go up? No, nope. but if you know where you are, it can help you think about what you do. So that's the lesson I take from it, 
Is there anything you'd add to that, Axel? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that goes together with what I said earlier about understanding more of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how it functions is that, you know, the Schiller Index or any of those different tools that are out there and charts and things that are out there, when you start studying it, you still would have to say, okay, how does the actual underlying foundation work, right? And if you just take the example of, a, of a, the S&P 500, right? Mm. And, and Keep in mind, I'm no longer a stock investor, but yeah. I'm still researching things to always try to stay up to date. And what I would say is what very few people pay attention to is how these 500 are actually put together. And it became recently pretty public when Tesla ent entered the S&P 500 and a bunch of companies had to be taken out to kind of rebalance the whole thing. But what it teaches somebody who says, okay, my lesson learned is to really try to understand above and beyond just the individual stock or the underlying company to the stock is to say, okay, well, if it now looks like it's 37, but it's 37 for the kind of companies who are the biggest right now, which is vastly overvaluing technology, Whereas you and I are not constantly buying a Tesla or putting solar on our roofs or stuff. The only one in the technology space where you could say we're really participating daily is kind of Amazon, right? But yeah. most of the other ones are not. And so that's another component to keep in mind to really get that understanding. Is it really fair to say the S&P 500 of 2021 compared to the S&P 500 in 2001 mm. versus the S&P 500 in 1921, that was completely different from what were these kind of companies and how representative of the economy were they really and how does it look right now, which all I, in a long way, I'm just saying, I think this is even more dangerous if you ask me because of how the weighing has shifted mm. to what it was in the past, which might mean 36 is already similar to 45 in the dot-com bubble. Yeah, yeah. But to me, the other thing that I would say as a lesson learned beside this kind of getting to understand what you're doing is to also really in, in a nutshell, if I bring it to the point and I do this oftentimes in Idea Wealth Grower is whether it's on the videos or podcasts mm. or so forth is to say, don't forget or maybe make this your number one thing to first ask yourself, what's the purpose of your activity, right? And I am being asked these days most often is it too late to invest in real estate? Mm. And I'm saying, well, ask yourself, what is the purpose? If you say, I want to invest in real estate because I want to get passive income, positive cash flow to get ultimately to my time freedom point where I don't need to exchange time for money anymore. Then the figure to look at that is, can I get, this is at least my advice mm. to you, your listeners, anybody who comes to me is, I want to keep it simple. If you find a property that pays you $1,000 in rent, then you shouldn't pay more than $100,000 for it. If you pay $150,000, you need to make $1,500. Now, as the market kind of goes more and more crazy, it's harder and harder to find these what I call well-performing properties. But if you just apply that rule, mm. then you know that your purpose of making positive cash flow from day one will be met no matter what. It is just mathematically impossible not to meet that. Now, if you say, well, you know, it, the same place costs 120 now and now they want 150 because everything got more expensive, but I don't get more rent, you're violating your principle just like I violated the principle of knowing what I'm doing when I invested in the stock market. Hmm. So coming down to say, what is the purpose of my activity? 
and from that purpose derive some clear criteria and principles that you then apply no matter what also keeps you safe yeah and i think that's an important thing it's not so much should you do like i'm now recommending real estate investing or should you go back in the stock market or should you invest in gold or bitcoin or whatever you do as long as you can really understand it and then derive the purpose and your principles from it any one of those could work yeah it's great uh, great advice and the idea there's two parts you know one is that one of the things i loved about finance and i've been doing research for years valuing companies is i always want to dig down deeper like okay what's causing that and then once you start digging down deeper you start to find even more questions and it's a never ending cycle of questions so for instance let's just look at another thing that makes it potentially more dangerous today when the dot com bubble started the long term interest rates for government bonds was about 8% when the dot com bubble peaked that had fallen to about let's say 5% that was a big fall and for people that don't understand that 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 basically means stock prices generally go up when interest rates are falling but if you look at this current rally from the 2008 bottom to today long term interest rates have gone from about 4.5% to about 1.5% so it's been an absolute massive decline in interest rates that has pumped up that pe and now you face a situation where interest rates could start rising and when they do what we'll see is that that pe will start to come down so yeah there's so many different factors and i think for the listeners out there you know i think the challenge that i've written down from what axel has taught us is identify your purpose and then determine your principles and as you do that it gives you a foundation for what you're doing not just chasing you know the ups and downs so for me that's the biggest takeaway let me ask you based upon what you learn from this story and what you continue to learn what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate think about it they're in an investment club right now talking about yeah, the amazing right. gains that they made and all of that Right. Well, for one, I mean, there are a couple of different ones. One is, I would say, don't be greedy. Right. Like, if you have been lucky enough to follow your principles and follow your purpose, and and things have worked out really well, there's nothing wrong with taking something off the table and put it into something that still has all its potential ahead of it. Mm. And I'm saying this deliberately in this abstract way because you need to do the research to find out which one is the one for you. Is it gold? Is it Bitcoin? Is it real estate? Is it stock market? Is it something completely different? Like you know, I don't know. I've been yeah. recently contemplating to invest in a cacao farm. <laughs> so, mm. yep. Whatever you know, like you. But it comes back to do your research, but don't do it while you kind of have these greedy. eyeglasses mm. on to say where can i make another couple of percent to increase my already amazing gains right yeah. i mean the one lesson that i have learned in it is regardless is most people cannot time regardless which market you look at exactly where the top is yeah. so you have to basically manage your greed but the other part is from a behavior perspective and it might sound weird and you have probably had many many of your guests say the same thing but I would say if you want to participate if you see all this what some people might call craziness or or lack of participation for certain groups I would say it's not a matter of can you be part of it or not 
but can you be disciplined? And that goes back to this, you know, the richest man in Babylon kind of book. Mm. If you can be disciplined enough to put 10% of what comes in away into an accumulation account before you ever get your pause on it, make it yeah. automatic, let it come away. Then while it's accumulating, you do the research for the thing that kind of tickles you, whether yeah. it's stock market or real estate or gold or Bitcoin or whatever it may be. And as you do this and you give yourself anywhere between six and 12 months to learn, that's plenty of time to get the accumulation account to be something big enough to really do something with it. And then you can do an informed decision of putting your money into whatever you find serves your purpose. That that will be my advice. And okay. if you follow that, then there is no exclusion. The thing that frustrates the, me the most is that a lot of the people come to me and say, hey, I read or heard something on Andrew's podcast mm. and so forth about real estate investing, but I think this is only for rich people. Mm. And I always say, you know, as long as you don't define a rich person to be able to put fifteen or $20,000 together, then it's not for rich people because anybody, I believe, can put fifteen dollars to $20,000 together. And that's the entry fee for the first property. Okay. So last Today. question. Yeah. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I want to get my portfolio grown in my real estate property portfolio by another two or three properties. Mm. Exciting. And do you, is that going to be in the same region, in the same type? No, or? actually, I'm trying, and, and this might be surprising for you. I, I have investments in Ohio and some in Idaho and, and some in Illinois. And so my new place, where some, maybe all of these are going to be, is Alabama. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, we look forward to learning more. And listeners, don't forget to go to the YouTube channel, right? And at the YouTube channel, you can learn about, you know, what Axel's thinks and what he's doing ideal wealth grower well listeners there you have it another story of loss to keep you winning my number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you my listener reduce risk and increase return in your life to achieve this i've created our community at my so join to get also the discount for podcast listeners for the six-week valuation masterclass bootcamp where we value companies like Tesla, like we talked about today. As we conclude, Axel, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Anybody can be an investor. Beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.